you sound fantastic. You sound handsome as always. <laughs> I sound like I'm just getting over a summer cold is what I sound like. So. Oh, that, that adds gravitas. Exactly. I'll just gravel and rumble a little bit. Um, great. So this is where I've never done one of these without the video component, but it looks like it just happens automatically. So there's nothing I need to do from this end. Uh, no, no, no. We okay. initiate, no, we've got it all on our end. It's recording and, um, uh, yeah, all good. We, we don't do the video because it just, it saps away, you know, you would lose the, the, the lustrous timbre of your dulcet tones. <laughs> Thanks. Guy. And, and I have a question about, um, about your name. Oh, hi, Joe. Hi. Um, can you hear Joe? Okay. Yes. Yes. Cool. Cool. Okay. So, I can too. So Emerson, what's that about? Is that a surname at some point, or what's you no. like to use the Emerson? So I do. Um, it was my grandfather's first name, uh, so he was Emerson Collins, uh, oh. and I use Emerson uh, in. I started using it uh, in large part because there were there are a number of other Kevin Collinses who are prominent patent litigators. Little did I know. I did um, not know that. Yeah, so wow. uh, big, big time Washington D.C. law firms. There's, there's a number of different Kevin Collinses. So I thought from the beginning I should just use that middle name as a differentiator. Uh, but there's no, uh, you know, there, there's no story to it beyond a family first name. No, I don't know who who these people are in in D.C. But I, I have to think that they're all thinking when you came on the scene. Oh, great. Now I've got to change my name, right? Well, if, it, if you do... Because the, the Kevin Collins has now arrived. Yeah, right. so it depends right. upon which which audience, you know, market segment one is in, right? I think the Kevin Collins for certain other crowds of patent litigators may well be the... Uh, I'll take being the Kevin Collins for uh, for patent academics. So what's the jingling? Is that some oh, no, noise that's, that's, that's supposed to mean we change topics or something? No, no, no we don't. <laughs> We, we've got no nonsense on this. Okay, show. I thought it was a no. subtle cue to like shut up and move on to the next. No, time. no, no, but no. That's, that w- that's uh, longtime listeners will appreciate that. That is my dog. Oh, who, may, who tends to make an appearance on each. She may bark at some point. Okay, probably will. She okay. probably will. You'll probably hear her. Excellent. Uh, her name yelling is, at people outside. Her name is Darcy, and she's really great. Okay. Now, now, Kevin, we start the show with follow up, and we have a couple of follow up items. But you- I just have to clear. I've got one okay. more clarification right. on Kevin's name before we right. go to follow up, which is simply to make sure that there isn't any connection between Kevin and the uh, '70s band Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. No, there there is no connection. Nor uh, uh, throughout college, actually, the middle name dropped out, and I know it was known by the initials KC, which got turned into Casey. So Casey and the Sunshine Band is actually the 70s band with which I am most frequently associated, uh, but I am actually associated with neither. Now, are, are they walking on sunshine? Uh, they they were at the time. I do yeah. not know their present state. Yeah. No, because nice. I've always wondered why I hear that song whenever I, you know, whenever I see your face, Kevin. Oh, I understand. Yes. Now, it's, now I get it. No, it that's Peaches and Herb. <laughs> whenever I Does see it? your face. I don't. No, I'm not. That's not. That's not a. That's not what I'm talking about. Jim. Oh, okay. I think you're talking about. Uh, maybe we should do follow up. No, I think you're thinking of Bachman Turner Overdrive. Mm. No, I think you're thinking of ELO. Mm. Mm. That's Devo. Whip I think it. you're. I think you're thinking of. This is not. We're we're totally <laughs> swiping this thing. <laughs> from Merlin Mann and Dan Benjamin. We are. Who I haven't um, heard in a long time. Yeah. Here's the thing. Um, so are we going to do follow up now? Yeah, I, I have a couple items. I have uh, a couple of items too. Can, can I start? Follow up could take an hour. Sorry, Let's, Kevin. Swiping, swiping will, another thing from Dan and, and Merlin. It's I your show, Joe. Patiently and silently. Okay, so <laughs> so one one big item. One of our earliest listeners, 
from episode zero on our first left our first review in iTunes, I think. Nice. Van Hoofen Stampin. Oh yeah. You you know listener Van Hoofen Stampin? Sure. Um by the way, you know, e- even if you don't listen to the show through iTunes and, and we've mentioned many times now, get yourself a good podcast app or even just use, you know, the one that comes with your phone if you have to. Listen to it that way. Listening to it through your computer or downloading it in iTunes, that's no way to live. Yeah, but, but going to iTunes and giving it a review and rating it with five stars, that's very much the way to live. Yeah, that's, that helps people find the show. And Van Hoof and Stampin' was one of the early ones who went on there, I think gave us five stars and, and rated the show. Well, guess what? I, I do, um, uh, he's, not a, he's not family, may not even be a he, but I do know Van Hoof and Stampin'. Uh, shout out because he just got married. Congrats. Yeah. So congratulations to listener Van Hoofen Stampin. Absolutely. Um, wonderful, wonderful person. So uh, that that's our first bit. The other bit is uh, I have to send, I've apologized to them on Twitter, and I think I'm going to apologize again today because we're probably not going to get to this follow-up today. Um, but we've got uh, two listeners. Uh, one is uh, Spencer, who sent some uh, some feedback uh, a couple weeks ago, and I don't think today is the day we're going to get to that, right, Joe? Mm, okay. Uh, unless that was one of your items. No, it's not. Okay. Um, but we will, it's on our list. And the other is from uh, C.S. Baker, uh, who who uh, follows, this is Chris Baker on Twitter, um, who had some uh, an interesting thought about the, um, uh, stemming from our discussion, I think it was with Dahlia Lithwick about the Town of Greece case, although we've talked about that a couple of times. Yeah, I think it was from that because it was like the theory of religion and government. Anyway, we're going to get back to that at some point because we're going to talk about Hobby Lobby and that may be a better chance to talk right. about this particular uh, feedback. So yeah, uh, our, we, we are not losing your feedback, but we're trying to hold it for the most opportune time because everything about this show is totally optimized. Right, Joe? Indeed. Top to bottom. Top to bottom. In fact, side to side. Yeah. No. Yeah. We use uh, the whole show. We, um, we record and then we compile it. GCC compiled. <laughs> no, we use Clang. We're optimized. So one, uh, so I have a piece of follow-up, which is simply to thank friend of the show, BT, for sending us the great picture of Adam Smith, which she took uh, when she was in Edinburgh recently. A wonderful picture of an Adam Smith statue. Mm-hmm. Um, people who've heard prior episodes will know how both wonderful and irritating that is. <laughs> this is listener Barbara, who I think may be the biggest fan of the show. Which is totally cool. I think she is the biggest fan of the show in the whole world. I've never been so delighted to be so vexed at seeing that picture. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't think we'll spoil the surprise, but we'll we'll leave uh, the mystery of why listener Barbara is the is the biggest fan of the show for another for another episode. How about certainly, that? Okay. Certainly. This is the nonsense that at least a few listeners skip past. We're not quite at ten minutes yet, so they. Right. We don't want to get anything substantive because they no. skip to 10 minutes. And yeah, Hi, Christian. Oh. <laughs> Shall we start? Is, did you have any other follow-up? I don't. Just that. Ke- Kevin, do you have any follow-up? Uh, I, I do, actually, from the conversation I was having with my wife yesterday about her birthday gift, but I'm not going to share that on the air. So thank you. Oh, this is, this is a good venue, we have found, <laughs> in our experience, for, uh, for solving marital problems yeah. relationship issues uh so if there's anything you need to if you need to clear the air go ahead caller yeah <laughs> <laughs> we're listening uh, i really it's all about a selection of appropriate birthday gifts and, and we'll, uh-huh. we'll save that for another day too mm, fair enough yeah long time birthday gift buyer first time caller yeah we get it <laughs> uh well, so today's ex- so we're, we're at the uh, uh for listeners who are um listening to this on um 
kind of platinum holographic uh, t- capsules uh, 100 years in the future. Let's get the. D- we are in late June of 2014. And uh, this is way, you know, for listeners again, 100 years in the future. Uh, this is way back during that era where the Supreme Court. Um, basically dropped a whole bunch of uh, drops a whole bunch of um, blockbuster opinions at the end of the term, uh, literally in boxes. Um, and listen to our episode with Dahlia Litwick about all the ways that this is kind of backwards. But uh, we are at the portion uh, of the Supreme Court's term when we got lots of blockbuster cases coming out. Uh, Hobby Lobby has not yet come down, but it will come down uh, next week. Um, and we've got Kevin Collins on the show at a really good time, I think. So uh, Kevin is, um, I would say, um, of course, you know, with along with Joe, uh, the world's preeminent IP scholar. <laughs> would, would you? Yeah, well, I limit it to the world, Christian. Come on, let's be a little more, <laughs> let's be a little more aggressive here. Well, the, the known universe. Okay, thank you. Uh, we can't say the visible universe because, you know, there could be, you know, you never know. You never know. So uh, there have been a couple of really interesting I would say actually three really interesting technology-related opinions that have come down uh, quite recently, one of which is directly in your wheelhouse, Kevin. That's on patent law. Uh, and Joe's as well. You both do patent law. Kevin's, uh, Kevin's mind and spirit know no wheelhouse. He has the strength of 10 I, scholars. I, if you take nay, that nay, statement literally, actually, that it can be taken in another way there, Joe, but I'll, I'll try, <laughs> not, try not to do that. Well, I want to make clear that uh, that that he has the strength of ten scholars, nay, a hundred scholars. Uh, so uh, there, you, you you can't confine him that way. It's yeah. actually the hundred scholars tends to be a little bit of schizophrenia. So as so you hear me uh, uh, voicing contradictory opinions throughout this, it's very common because the voices in my head always do disagree about exactly what's going. on. <laughs> so here, I'm going to I'm going to go through the three cases that I think are relevant to. Uh, for uh, that are extremely uh, relevant and interesting to people who are interested in technology and the law. We don't have to talk about all three today, although I'm interested to hear your your uh, opinions in these cases, which don't directly touch patent, which is your area of expertise, Kevin, and, and also you, Joe. Uh, so the, the patent case is, is um, what's the name of that patent case? It's Alice Corporation. Against CLS Bank. Yeah, so this is basically someone who came up with a technique of doing something uh, which a lot of people have come up with before, but says, guess what? We're going to do it on a computer. Yeah. Patent. And the Supreme Court says no. And we're going to get into the details of that in a second. Second case is the Aereo case, um, which uh, is a service that uh, has a bunch of antennas in a central location. I don't know if they had more than one location. Uh, and when you want to watch something on broadcast television, which would be free if you were close enough to uh, have right. an antenna and receive the signal. Right. Um, uh, yeah, you just put up an antenna, you turn on your antenna. TV, and you're entitled to watch it. Indeed, you're entitled to record it. Right. But here you're going to use an antenna, which is among the many, many antennae that this particular company had. These are small antennae connected to computers. And you could tune in to broadcast television in the antenna receiving area of their, their data center, which I think was in New York or... Brooklyn, New York. Yeah. Uh, and the Supreme Court said, no, that that's a copyright violation. Um Potentially shutting down the company. It looks like one of the biggest backers has said that it's game over. But I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. And again, we don't have to do that today. But I wanted to flag it as a as another issue. The other one is the um, recent decision about um, warrantless searches of cell phones upon arrest. And the Supreme Court has said no. Uh, an exception to the requirement that for a search the police need a warrant has always been a search incident to a lawful arrest. So if you're arrested, they can kind of search your person and surroundings. 
um, for a couple of purposes. And what made that this particular case go is that the Supreme Court identified these purposes of warrantless searching uh, when they arrest you to uh, officer safety. They got to find weapons and stuff. You can't allow right. people to get into police cars with guns that they didn't find. So they can search no. you for that kind of stuff. And they can search you to prevent you from destroying uh, evidence. Yeah. Uh, and, and once they find something on you, this old case about a crumpled cigarette pack, which had some further uh, heroin packets inside of it, once they find something, they can also thoroughly look at it to make sure it is what it looks like. Right. Which is why finding a cell phone on you might invite further looking at the phone. Sure, sure. And so I think these three cases are you know interesting in the aggregate, and a lot of people, you know, we're not the first to point out that the kind of common theme through these three cases, and that's law kind of washing up against changing technology um, and advancing technology. Uh, why don't we, I think we should definitely start with the patent case, unless, uh, Kevin, you had general thoughts on these three cases uh, that you wanted to share. Um, no, I'm actually, uh, the overview of the three cases is interesting. I'd be interested at the end, maybe after we talk about some of the patent uh, case in particular, uh, to try to figure out whether you actually think there are themes that unite these or whether they are three distinct decisions that are dealing with three different areas and we can talk about them as all involving technology, but really each one is wound up more with its own individual body of law than it is with some kind of overarching uh, uh, advance of technology theme. I see the Nietzsche as particular to the area of law in which they're decided. Technology in a way is just becoming a matter of fact. It's becoming a uh, uh, something we have to think about in every body of law, and I'm not sure there is something anymore about technology cases in general, which really uh, uh, merits uh, uh, lumping them together as a as a, a thematic discussion. Right? There was a uh, a well known essay by um, uh, uh, Lawrence Lessig. Easterbrook. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. No, I was uh, thinking the of Law of the Horse. horse. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, uh, with Easterbrook suggesting that whether or not there should be such a thing as the law of the horse, uh, I think that's still very much up in, the, up in the air for whether or not there is such a thing as technology law today. Yeah, and it, okay, so we, I will not go into this right now, but I do want to come back to it at the end because I actually I did, wrote a little blog post. We talked about this on This Week in Law, um, on, on which podcast our, our colleague Sonia West, a friend of the show, is appearing, is appearing today. It's appearing today. Um, uh, so I wrote this little piece about information law and uh, the what I call the information law crisis. And, and so my view is not necessarily that there is a thing called information law or technology law, which is distinct from other forms of law, and we need to specify its meets and bounds. Um, but it, it's kind of at a secondary level that the ongoing, uh, and I hate to use buzzwords, so it's not, you know, the information revolution, I'll just say it, the information revolution is changing people's expectations about uh, what is valuable in their lives and what is important. And these underlying social changes are presenting similar but distinct challenges in a number of areas of law. Mm -hmm. And and that so it's kind of on that secondary level that I think these cases are 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 united. Um, and even to say they're united is maybe too much. Um, but people have a different relationship to their phones mm -hmm. uh than they did before and the phone is a is a different kind of thing and a different kind of repository of 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 things which are valuable to a person than mm -hmm. say a wooden box or you know something that you would store paper in or something like that um and and, and so too our expectations about 
receiving broadcast television, you know, so anyway. I've undergone a lot of change yeah. in the last five, ten years. Okay, so let's just, no, but let's bracket that for let's now. Let's bracket oh, that oh, for I, now. I, yeah. I, okay. As the invited guest, I get to extend this discussion for just another 30 seconds here. Uh, okay. Uh, in that I think there is something, Christian, that you're identifying in a certain subset of cases uh, involving technology. Uh, I think that the way in which the courts actually choose to address technological issues is heavily influenced by the extent to which those technologies have become uh, no longer foreign part of the future, but are actually seen as part of the way in which people live their everyday lives. So you can look at two different copyright cases. Uh, to, to, to briefly talk about the Arrow case, uh, look at two different copyright cases, the case um, from now going on, I guess, over three decades ago, uh, in that, where the court said that it was permissible for the public to engage in certain kinds of taping practices at home, uh, using a Sony Betamax and said that the Sony Betamax sale of the Sony Betamax did not amount to contributory copyright infringement. Uh, that opinion uh, has often been hypothesized to have come out the way it did, which is legitimizing the Sony Betamax, precisely because during the time period of the litigation over the four years, it had become incorporated into American households as a way in which it's a part of culture. Whereas the Aero system, although it is very interesting and potentially adopted by a lot of people. It had not reached that tipping point yet. It had not become a part of the cultural lexicon of today. It was still seen as a view as a, something that was coming, right? Something that was arrived for the masses in the near future. And in that instance, I think the court was much more willing to say, no, this arrow thing actually does violate copyright law precisely because culture had not yet incorporated the technology as something more than a cold box that people might eventually buy. I think that's right, and and um, and we actually talked about uh, Betamax. Was it last show or the, the show before about the way that the justices perceived the value of that thing based on their personal experience? And the dissents actually in that case mm-hmm. and said, "Well, this isn't quite like what we understand as normal fair use, which is clipping out newspapers and sending them to friends, <laughs> right? Which is the kind of thing that the justices engaged in, but right. maybe was not uh, part of uh, most people's everyday lives." Um, Another thing but- that really separates Aereo from Sony is that. Uh, Aereo, uh, the more recent case about this recording on these little micro antennae, uh, or with these little micro antennae, uh, is that Sony didn't upset um, a pre the Sony case and the existence of recording as a feature offered on videotape recorders for sale to people to use in their home. Uh, that didn't upset an established set of incumbents who were already offering home taping services. And Aereo does upset a batch of incumbents, yeah. namely the broadcast TV people who are providing television shows over the airwaves on an advertising model. And, and so the, the, therefore the court has a ready analogy to say, oh, well, what Aereo is doing is trying to be a cable company without paying the going rate for being a cable company. Uh, and so it query whether in a world where something like, uh, iTunes paying for show episodes already existed, would the Sony case look the same, right? Where you've got someone who's offering to give you a way to do for free what you now have to pay a buck a shot to do. But the, beta, the Betamax case, um, and, and, and so there's a pro and anti incumbency thing going yeah, on I, in the cases that's different. And lis- listeners should know, uh, I know we've talked about this case on the show before, but this was five to four. There was, there was one vote's difference between declaring the VCR an illegal product or a legal product, right. and it came out in favor of the VCR. And Aereo was 6 3. 
And right. Um, uh, so, so it, it was very close, but I would say this is an important distinction. Uh, the VCR was the kind of encapsulation and best use of the technology at the time, which gave to consumers the most power the technology could deliver at the time, right? So it was like, uh, you know, magnetic tape, hooking up to a TV, finding ways to do this cheaply. Like, you know, suddenly there was something on the planet that clearly made everybody's lives better. And so one of my views is that once something like that shows up and the only barrier to adoption of that thing is the law, eventually the law is going to give way, right? Uh, because we can do this thing. I, you know, I think the Napster's iTunes story is another example of that. Right. But Aereo is uh, a product which really should not exist. It's a really wasteful product <laughs> in a way, right? I mean, it's like you have all these antennae because the technology exists for one person to capture all broadcast information, put it on a giant server, and then, you know, there are a number of different technologies for allowing a bunch of people to access that information. So they didn't do it that way. Why? Because of the law, right? They have all these antennae, which uh, uh, thousands of them, so that every time and you dialed up, uh, I Old, old school talk about it. But every time you connected and said, I want to watch a show, you got your own antennae, antenna, which wrote, uh, which received signals and then wrote the information from those signals onto a user-specific portion of a larger server. So you actually had space on a physical hard drive, yeah. which was recording the information for you, to, which was then transmitted to your home. Why, but why you... I don't understand why you would say that shouldn't exist. We, to, this is... It's a terrific waste of hard drive space, antenna. Not uh, at all. It, it, to me, it seems like it's a way for people who live in areas where there is not great broadcast TV reception. And there are many such people, especially, interestingly enough, in very dense neighborhoods in New York City, for example. You're misunderstanding my argument, so, Joe. I don't think I am. I'm, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Kevin. Um, I think maybe one point Christian's trying to make is whether or not the technology at issue kind of looks like a Rube Goldberg machine, right? Exactly. Uh, there would be a, uh, a, a technologically efficient, if you're going to say efficiency in terms of number of lines of coding or number of machines required or amount of, you know, cable that's necessary in order to make this thing work. Uh, there would be one efficient solution to distributing TV to a broad segment of people, uh, but that efficient solution uh, would violate uh, the known copyright laws. Therefore, there was an attempt to build something that is kind of Rube Goldberg-like, has a bunch of redundancies within it, uh, uh, kind of goes about things in awkward ways. Eventually, the service received may appear to be very elegant and necessary by those who desire it, but there's a kind of redundancy or uh, backwards uh, a design around aspect of the technology that is clear on its face where they were trying to design around the law. Well, right. But that's exactly, see, this to me is why it's, it's, um, maybe it's, uh, it might be inefficient in some sense, but in terms of the the ultimate dynamic efficiency, uh, meaning the development of new technology over time, it's it's things working exactly as I think they should, which is someone's trying to offer something people desire. They look at the different ways it can be offered. Some of those ways are blocked to them. They try other ways. Mm -hmm. And the fact that uh, there might be a natural monopoly for cable, as traditionally understood, uh, for, for accumulating and then redispersing television signals, uh, fine. That's great. That exists. But what if someone could, because of the advent of internet infrastructure, say, wait a minute, I can do this in a different way. And I can preserve the important 
what the copyright law has heretofore identified as the important role of the individual viewer's volition and choice about what they want to watch when they want to watch it as making it a private, not a public matter, and therefore not putting me in the cable box and instead in another box. Um, I want to, I want to address that situation. That's called innovation. That's not inefficient. It's people trying lots of things. I mean, it's inefficient in the same way that, you know, Linus Pauling once said, if you want to have a great idea, you need to have lots of ideas. The implication being because most ideas suck. Yeah, but this is an idea. You know, the, the major innovation here is overcoming purely legal hurdles. Right. Yeah, right. But I don't I don't make. Yes, some hurdles are legal. Some are technological. But when it, when it, when you're just trying to get from point A to point B, a hurdle is a hurdle. I don't get the what, why why reclassify hurdles as legal or technical. So, so, Joe, I have to say you're sounding very much to me like a patent person, which I appreciate because I do am a patent person. Because in <laughs> patent law, we conflate those two all the time. Because when there is a patent on a particular technology, we actually view the incentive that patent law gives to people to design around the patent and to feature. create alternative mechanisms for achieving a utility that a consumer desires that is outside the scope of that patent as a social good, right? This is something where we're actually fostering a diversity right. of innovation and not channeling everyone through the first opening in a technological horizon that happens to come along. So yeah. in patent law, we constantly talk about this incentive to design around Around, a hurdle which is in some ways it's technological slash legal because it's a patent covering a particular kind of technology and i can i can really hear that patent oriented benefit of incentive to design around in your response to what uh, the copyright issue that we've been discussing and it's a feature not a bug exactly. this incentive to design around it's woven into the fabric of patent law which is this legal technological thing and and if someone said, well, you know, designing around a patent, that's just you're just designing around a legal barrier. Well, uh, I guess, but it's a it's a and it's an exclusion right on a technology. In just the way that copyright and its infrastructure, its legal infrastructure for regulating the relationship between cable companies and content providers, it's legal, but it's technology, cable yeah, but, technology. So I can understand that the patent argument. Um, uh, although, as you know, I don't think patent should exist. But, uh, uh, but, but, I, but I do, I do appreciate this. This I haven't really heard this design around like pat by blocking one door, you encourage people to find other doors, and that's a social good. That's actually you know interesting, and I would like to think about the class of situations in which that actually is true and obtains. Uh, and may, maybe it's a large class. And copyright, I don't see it as much. And so, for the listeners again, Aereo is a copyright. Yes. case it's yeah. where uh where the um uh network uh tv providers i think at the behest of advertisers and other things right. brought a claim against aereo claiming that you are publicly um you're publicly broadcasting content that we own expression yeah. that we own and copyright is about expression it's about creating property rights and expression uh, for limited times although these days that it's virtually unlimited uh but it is about limited times of of, of property and expression Whereas the uh, patent cases are about inventions and, and exactly what inventions means and how that's distinct from embodiments and knowledge. That this is this gets into Kevin's work and and really interesting stuff. Uh, but in copyright, you cannot copyright ideas. You cannot protect ideas. Uh, a fundamental precept of copyright law is only the expression of ideas is is, is copyrightable. And so that's what Aereo involves. Um, right. But and one we, critique you could make of it uh, of the majority's opinion uh, in Aereo. Uh, 
and the way that it uh, condemns Aereo's strategy as being, although not actually a cable company, so much like one that it's prohibited, um, is that it extends something like, it, it extends quasi-patent protection to a business methodology of cable TV um, without any of the rigors of patent itself uh, and using copyright, which as you've just said quite correctly, uh, is not supposed to protect ideas. It's supposed to protect the expression of, of the individual expression of particular things for a given author. Um, so, you know, you could say, you could describe what I believe to be the quite wrongheaded approach of the majority as you're treating this as if it were a patent case yeah. on a business method right. called well, running a cable company. Okay, so we're going to get into patent. because I, I, But let, let me just summarize what happened in Aereo really quickly uh, for the <laughs> listeners. Uh, uh, so the upshot is, because you might wonder, how do we get to this place? The idea with Aereo is that the listeners, I mean, listeners, see what I'm thinking? I'm always thinking about you guys, listeners. That's always <laughs> my, my heart and my head are always with you. Uh, but in Aereo, uh, a view, an individual viewer at home will click and say, I want to watch this program. And then a signal goes up to the data center, and and uh, an antenna is is uh, reserved for your use. It receives the signal that you want, it, uh, and then that signal eventually gets back to uh, your computer uh, through through the network. Um, and and you might think, well, the the user is controlling what he or she watches on his or her own dedicated antenna for that time, and that just looks like receiving broadcast signals, which he or she is legally entitled to do. And in fact, if I got if I just bought from Aereo one of those antennae and the right to use Aereo's software and set up my own server, uh, everybody would agree there's nothing wrong with that. I can receive a signal in New York and I can have it broadcast to me in here here in Georgia. Uh, and if I do all that on my own I'd, and I have a long, especially if I have a long enough wire, right, to go from that antenna to my television, all is good. Um, so how did this, how is this problematic? Because it seems to be that sort of thing. Well, a long time ago, there were a couple of cases where I guess um, cable com- uh, or some companies got the idea um, that we can actually sell rights to, or we can sell the ability to receive signals from farther around if we just string wires from, say, a town in a valley or something like that, right. uh, up to big, big antennas uh, of the kind that people wouldn't be able to have on. I'm saying antennas and antennae. You notice that? It's cool. Can't decide. Anyway, uh, antennae is when it's really small. I think that antennae is for insects, and <laughs> antennas is for TVs. Okay, right. So. Uh, and, and cable and so, TV got its start, by the way, in Pennsylvania, where there is exactly the kind of topography that you're talking about. There's the, the, exactly the kind of hill and valley where you put an antenna up on the hill, you wire it down. And indeed, cable TV was invented by a guy who was trying to sell televisions. So he got an antenna up on the hill so that he could bring a wire into his TV store yeah, okay. and show a better signal to his customers. And the idea in these cases was exactly that. that so the, it was a marketing that, idea. That the individual who's wanting to watch TV is controlling what channel to receive. And they're just basically choosing which part of the signal to get from this wire, this community and from, from the community antennae and the compu- and the community wire. Right. All that's going. And I just, I select and the Supreme court said it absolutely. But then Congress got in the act. Um, and as so often happens, Congress's role in the development of intellectual property was destructive in favoring of incumbents. <laughs> and, uh, and they said, yes, this is, this is, uh, you, you can't do this. And they changed a couple of definitions, um, uh, such that, um, the, uh, uh, hosting, uh, or the, uh, receipt, uh, a company receiving signals and then kind of rebroadcasting them writ large through a, through a wire is kind of publicly performing the, um, the expression that they're receiving. 
And, and Congress says basically can't do that. And so this whole case, Justice Breyer's opinion, and the dissenters here were conservatives on the court, uh, um, and the uh, Breyer was wrote for the majority, uh, that this is enough like that case where we think the same rule should apply. And so there are kind of deeper principles here about how the court should respond to legislative action over time. And it looks like Aereo is kind of exploiting a kind of loophole of the kind that the that these original cable companies, if you like, tried to exploit uh, uh, kind of through technology a loophole uh, and, uh, that Congress appeared directly to attempt to close. And so because and, Congress— And sadly, the majority yeah. learned exactly the wrong lesson, which is the, – because the, the lesson of the cable TV experience seems to me is um, given that what you're talking about here are the limits of people's claims to property entitlements, that courts proceed narrowly and cautiously and let the legislature readjust things on a going forward basis if it should so desire. Because, for example— And that was it, Breyer in another case, in the Grokster case. Breyer yeah. was, we should tread lightly here. Right. Yeah. And in the Aereo case, you know, you could you could say, well, the cable example is important every bit as much for the fact that when Congress creates the public performance right that obl- that obliges cable companies to pay— content producers. Um, it interestingly, at the same time, denied content producers the right to say no. It's actually a compulsory license regime. Yep. So it's not a property rule. It's a liability rule. Yep. Um, and that's not accidental. The fact that those two things happened at the same time, that's the kind of... So rather than denigrate legislative involvement, I would valorize it and say that's exactly what legislatures are good at doing, is b- bringing together lots of possibilities, log rolling a bit, you know, getting the the corners uh, sanded down a bit and working out a new solution for something. And the court can play an information forcing role by saying, look, it's this is kind of murky. So we're going to actually be modest about handing someone a property entitlement, which would be hard to eliminate after the fact, given other rigors of our legal system. And so you go talk to the legislature. Yeah. Which is essentially what the dissenters wanted to do here. Are we ever going to talk about the patent case? I feel bad for Kevin. <laughs> well, I don't. Kevin, do you have any final thoughts on the Aereo case? I mean, we, we barely scratched the surface with it, but the, the, I last, don't know if the you... last time I had a final thought claimed another thirty seconds of extension was ten minutes ago. So I think I'll just pass this time. <laughs> well, all right. So let's. Do, do you um, uh, do you want to summarize this uh, the the facts behind in simple terms the the Alice Corporation case, or do you want Joe or me to do it? Uh, either way, either way, uh, I'll give it a. Rank. I want to hear. Kev- I want to hear Kevin take. Yeah, uh, me too. Okay. Uh, Although Joe is equally as much uh, into this stuff as I am, so I'm happy for friendly amendments as this goes along, Joe, okay? Indeed. Um, So uh, what we have here is a uh, patent owner uh, who has uh, come along and patented a method of engaging in certain kinds of bargained transactions. Uh, when two people engage in a bargain transaction, there's something out there called settlement risk. There's a there's a fear that I might give you what you asked for, but when you actually won't come or get around to giving me what I asked for, maybe because you go bankrupt in the meantime, right? Uh, so there's always a theory that if I give you $10 and I'm expecting a nice big cake or something back, I might give you the $10 and then you say, oops, sorry, my business is belly up, you don't get the cake. Uh, what Alice has come up with here is a method of mitigating this so-called settlement risk or the risk that your bargain won't be executed by both sides. Uh, 
Obviously, and the, the notion is that there is a third party intermediary here that will receive what each side is going to give in the transaction and will only allow certain transactions to go to fruition to occur once um, uh, both sides have demonstrated that they've ponied up and actually have the assets that are necessary in order to fulfill the bargain. Uh, so that's the notion out there. There's a patent on this method of uh, engaging in certain kinds of transactions that minimize settlement risk because there is a third party intermediary uh, that will only allow the transaction clear once it's uh, obvious that both people have uh, what's the wherewithal to fulfill their side of the obligation. And, and this is really easy to think about, too. You just imagine there's a guy in a room who has access to both of your bank accounts. Sure. Sure. And and is looking at them, you know, right. so I, I want to buy a car and you want to sell me a car. And we agree that I'll hand over the money and you'll hand over the car, but we're going to do it at slightly different times. Yeah. And and to solve the problem of maybe one of us uh, reneging on the deal midway through after collecting the money or the car, uh, we deputize, again, a guy in a room who sees both of our bank accounts and, and is able to stop any transactions from recurring. Mm-hmm. Right, which would take maybe my bank account balance below the point where I could fill my obligation to pay you. Right. I mean, that's basically what's going on, so, right? Yeah, it's basically what's going on. There are two additional features here that I think are, are, are one one feature and one um, background fact that have to be gotten out there to really understand what Alice's patent invention is here. Uh, the background fact is that although we can use these very simple transactions to explain the technology. Uh, let's face it, a lot of transactions out there in the world today are really complicated. Uh, and there is a significant settlement risk that exists for some of these very complicated structured financial transactions that aren't quite true when someone shows up with a checkbook and someone else has a lot full of cars, right? Um, so there is, there is truly a, a need for this kind of, uh, uh, of this kind of um, setup. Uh, the other, fact about this uh, particular invention is that the nature of what Alice claims as an invention is not simply the method of engaging in reducing settlement risk by using a third-party intermediary, but they've tried a claim where, as Joe alluded to, I think it was Joe alluded to earlier, you can only infringe this patent if you use a computer to uh, execute this particular trade. So only if it's a computer executed trade on which there is a third party intermediary uh, who mitigates settlement risks, only in that circumstance do you actually run afoul of the patent. So people wouldn't infringe this patent if Christian's uh, story about a guy in a room actually were the system. Uh, This is legitimately and correctly referred to as a software patent in that only software execution of these trades can infringe. And in that sense, the the claim is to a narrower bit of territory. Yes. It, it's not to intermediated settlement risk reduction mm-hmm. uh, simpliciter. Mm-hmm. It's uh, intermediary uh, limited uh, settlement risk reduction mm-hmm. implemented by means of computers running software that carries out that process. Right. And, and it, my memory of this from the oral argument, and I, I, don't, I don't know if I saw this in the case, uh, in the opinion – is that the claims recited were, were more than just, and we're going to do all that on a computer. They specified some particular methods for doing it on a computer, but for anybody who knows computers, they were kind of, you know, just totally obvious ways that you would implement this so regime it's, it's on not a computer. Only, it's not only obvious, because this is going to get us into a patent term of art, which we'll have to introduce exactly, and discuss right. in a little bit, but 
Um, two things here. First, in order to understand the nature of a patent, it's really important to look at these entities we've been calling claims uh, because they they try, uh, not always successfully, but they try to set out in advance the nature of the invention that the inventor gets to exclude others from using. Uh, and here, there were the claims were limited to computer execution. Uh, the so, and Christian mentioned that the uh, claims uh, had these what are called limitations, which are basically recites, um, recitations of features in the invention that have to be present in order for there to be infringement. Uh, these limitations recited various parts of computer hardware. So I'm going to try to remember some of them off the top of my head, but there might have been something like a uh, processor listed or a... Uh, do you remember any of these, Joe, any of the actual limitations that were recited in the claim? Uh, the, no, I, I mean, I remember processor being mentioned in mm -hmm. the opinion. I think a memory. Right, so um, um, they talked about creating something called a shadow account, right? Uh, they talked about various aspects of the computer program that had to exist in order for there to be infringement. <coughs> but those Which is great. They, they recited a processor, RAM, a database. I mean, these are the, yeah, those, a data structure. Totally right. right those right. kinds um, of things that um, it would be impossible to engage in computer execution of this method absent those features of a computer. Uh, so it was not a set of limitations that said, well, if you engage in third, uh, um, using a third-party intermediary to reduce risk settlement in some ways, then you infringe. But if you do it in other ways, you don't. That's not the claim at issue. This claim was broad enough to really encompass any mechanism for using a computer to um, have a third-party intermedi intermediary reduce settlement. And, and Kevin, just to integrate your two kind of caveats here, um, this is not a patent that said something like, um, you know, reducing settlement risk through uh, in complicated transactions, um, it turns out to be a very hard problem because transactions are very complicated and monitoring bank accounts with lots of like high-speed transactions is really hard. And um, people have tried to solve this problem using uh, uh, computer assistance, third-party computer assistance, and it hasn't worked out really well. And here's a particular way, right? Uh, uh, you know, here's a particular, you know, collection of algorithms which are. And here, dear listeners, I'm sorry to report we ran into a technical difficulty. I want to say you're you're correct, Christian. The complexity of the transaction is what makes this particular patent. Uh, the complexity of contemporary transactions is what makes this patent valuable. However, there is nothing about this patent that is specific to complex transactions. And so it j just for a slightly different hypo, so you could imagine, um, let's say it's uh, the fact that when you're projecting an image on a screen, it's in the form of dots. Uh, and so you want to, with different size images, you want to create smooth boundaries rather than jagged boundaries. Mm -hmm. And depending on how big the dots are, that might be hard to do. Maybe it's with color with half toning, different black and white, different mix of black and white dots. Maybe it's translating color to black and white or vice versa. So those are situations where the actual algorithms that are effective in solving that particular problem, which is a problem that is the use of computers creates. Right. The, the the projection of an image that's basically in pixels instead of in the um, non-pixelated natural world, um, 
that that problem is one that sophisticated algorithms might be needed to solve, and it might take some doing to figure out just what they are, what those methods are. Mm-hmm. And so writing a claim about that computer-implemented process invention, the algorithms would actually make a difference, would, subs- would, would constitute an advance in the art of solving a particular new kind of problem, which is, I think, quite unlike what you guys ju- have just said about this financial transactions invention. But aren't patentable on their own. I mean, if they're pure algorithms, right? They are not patentable as pure, uh, just as a statement of a mathematical so, so formula. No, they're not. Just to back up, and then you guys see, uh, uh, since I'm somewhat the layman in, in IP law, let me let me just state for the listeners, and then you guys correct it, because my misimpressions are likely to be the listeners' misimpressions. So uh, with with patent law, right, we're thinking about inventions and ideas which are you know not copyrightable, not just the expression of these things. We think that these are things which advance the state of human knowledge and, and, and expertise and et cetera. Uh, and in order to get one of these things, so, so, and, and the, the way that we encourage that kind of work is to give people time limited monopolies over these inventions. And, uh, but patent law makes you jump through a certain number of hoops in order to get this property right, this set of fencing that you can put around your idea, if you like, if you want to think about it in relation to land, which is both misleading and helpful, uh, as an analogy. Uh, but one of the hoops you have to jump through is you have, to, uh, you have to show that you have patentable subject matter, the kind of thing that can be patented, which means it has to be, you know, an invention, a process, a method. I forget all the different, uh, things which, which qualify. But what it cannot be, the court has ruled, is a law of nature, a natural phenomenon, or an abstract idea. So you can't patent E equals MC squared. Uh, for example, or some other observation uh, of a fundamental principle of the universe, even if it's an imprecise one, like E equals MC square might be. But, um, uh, and, and so then people, you know, said, okay, so I can't patent like a mathematical formula or something like that. Well, guess what? I'm not trying to patent that. I'm trying to patent the calculation according to that formula using, say, a calculating device like a computer. And this case, in a way, is partly about that, and, and, and earlier cases have been elaborations of this problem as well. To what extent, if I have some kind of formula or, or equation or algorithm or other thing which might qualify as an abstract idea uh, or a law of nature, if I have a device which implements that, is that patentable? And that's kind of the, the question here. And then even if I can show that I've got an invention, which is, you know, not one of, it's not an abstract idea or a law of nature, I have to show that it's, uh, uh, that it's new, novel, and I have to show that it's not obvious to, what is it, an a, a practitioner of, of reasonable skill in the arts? Ordinary skill, yeah. Ordinary skill. And, right, so, um, so in other words, I have to show that it's both new and it's, it's the kind of new thing that everybody else didn't kind of take for granted or wouldn't have taken for granted, that I actually did some work in the field to advance the field. Um, and I think as, as we get into the discussion just a little bit more, we'll see how non-obviousness is mixed in kind of uncomfortable ways with this abstraction principle. Okay, so how did I do, guys? Well, I think you did a fine job of reiterating what is the standard line in patent law. But I think the standard line in patent law is a hollow and empty shell. So uh, I agree. I agree. <laughs> so you you you've successfully grasped the, the the what we're supposed to think is going on, but I think it's very hard to use what you just described as an actual framework for understanding what can and can't be patented. Oh, abs- absolutely. I I will take a B plus in my description <laughs> of the law. 
Uh, because, as you know, I think patent law should not exist at all, so, in, in part because of the problems that you're but that's putting not your finger hel- on. But that's not as helpful as what Kevin's going to do now, which is to Obviously give us a not. framework Obviously that's better not. than the empty shell. <laughs> oh, okay. Is he really going to? Okay. He is now going to give you the authoritative framework here. Um, Why don't you respond to this, Kevin? Because one of the, so what Thomas does, and Thomas wrote the opinion in this yes. case, is to say that in this case, where we've got this problem of, you know, this what looks like a uh, an abstract method or business method that uh, maybe is not patentable on its own, and basically what's claimed is putting it through a computer. He says that, and he quotes here, that we must distinguish between patents that claim the, quote, building blocks, unquote, of human ingenuity, and those that integrate the building blocks into something more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that sounds attractive, but seems to me totally unhelpful. It seems to me a misconception of the way that knowledge works. And and I know that you've written this year on exactly that kind of thing. Um do you think he's is he on to something there that can germinate into something more productive, or is that a totally unhelpful framing of the problem? So um, it's not a totally unhelpful framing of the problem. However, the way in which we would choose to take what you have just described as a basic underlying normative argument about when patents perhaps are beneficial or more or less beneficial uh, in a relative sense, and how you would implement that in terms of a set of patent doctrines that um, examiners in D.C. and judges in the courts can actually use on an ongoing basis, uh, there, there is a big question about whether um, uh, that actually can be turned into something that resembles an administrable patent doctrine. So just to take a step back here, um, I think there are a couple, there are two different questions we have to start asking uh, when we are talking about uh, software patents or uh, are we talking about software patents here? Is that the the general theme? I think we want to talk about just the the implications for patent law of this case. Okay. You know, this, uh, this okay. case is, but this case is partly about yeah, so, business uh, methods and partly about software, right? So to understand, yeah. the understand the implications of Alice here, we have to think about the law, uh, uh, patent law as it applies to software. Um, and there are two different questions which we have to be asking. Uh, the first question is stepping back from the intricacies of patent law itself. We have to ask a question, look, uh, are the kinds of software patents that are out there today and that were uh, uh, more readily available before Alice, uh, are they actually socially beneficial? Are we in a better world when we have that marginal increment of patent protection that has certain kinds of relatively broad software claims, such as claims to using a computer to uh, reduce settlement in- risk by having a third-party intermediary? Right. Uh, so that's one right. question, which is the straight up normative question about whether we think those kinds of patents are doing more to promote uh, progress or whether we think they're actually hindering progress. Then after we've asked that question, there's a whole second uh, line of inquiry, which becomes much more inside baseball. This is the kind of conversation that Joe and I, after a conference, would have a few too many beers and blabber on for far too long. Uh, if we actually think that these kinds of patents are not valuable for society, uh, what do we do about it? And a lot of the fight that's uh, going on amongst the patent uh, geeks after this particular opinion is more about aim to that second question. Exactly, if we think these kinds of patents aren't good, how should we adjust patent law in order to exclude them? And there's a big debate that goes on about whether 
um, the doctrine that the court used, which is this doctrine of patentable subject matter, which you discussed just a moment ago, Christian, is actually a viable way of um, the, the best way of eliminating that marginal increment of patent protection for relatively broad software patents, uh, or whether we think that other aspects of patent law would be better invoked in order to achieve that end. But it's important to distinguish those two questions. First, as a normative matter, do we think this kind of protection is good? And second, if we don't, how would we go about eliminating? Yeah, and, and I want to, you know, I want to build in here your, your work on kind of embodiment Yes. Advancements and knowledge advancements in a second. But one of the ways that, you know, I, I, I look towards the end of Thomas's opinion and he talks about, you know, uh, whether the computer stuff adds anything here because mm-hmm. he's already concluded that the, that the method of having the guy in the room looking at bank accounts is, is, is an abstract idea under 101. And then says, well, you know, you don't add anything to 101 by saying you're going to put all that through a computer. And he talks about how in, in, in a, in a context where all that stuff on the computer is so highly conventionalized and well understood well, that that's clearly not the source of something quote inventive. That was going to be my point, right? That I, I highlighted a few phrases here, you know, carried out in existing computers and I highlighted long in use mm-hmm. or, uh, and the computer implementation was purely conventional, mm-hmm. right? And it seems to me like a couple of these, uh, and maybe you agree, uh, maybe you don't, but he's mixing a couple of different patent ideas mm-hmm. in this opinion. So, for example, imagine that we have the same business method, you know, of the guy in the room looking at bank accounts and, and only letting transactions through that people have the ability to pay for or leave the ability to pay for the ultimate transaction. So imagine we've got that. And what was claimed was was that, which you can't patent, I guess. And then I've got a method for using a, a, an ordinary hairdryer, right, to do the calculations and serve as the third party. You know, instead of a guy in the room, I've got this hairdryer, which can actually do these things in a crazy way. You know, like, well, that's unexpected. Like, you know, that, that's... <laughs> cool. But, so so what's being claimed there, or, or if, you, if you think that's patentable, and again, I don't think anything should be patentable, but let's suppose that we should allow such things to be patentable. It is Well, that seems like totally unexpected. It seems like an advance, and it seems like not a an existing computer long in use or a purely conventional computer implementation. But but what is new there, what is we think should be patentable, again, blurring all three of these kinds of threshold questions into one, is, man, I didn't know you could use a hairdryer to do that. And maybe that's really cool, right? Um, but that's not what's claimed here. And so, in fact, what's going on is that the the abstract part is the guy in the room part. And, that, and, and you can't patent that because that's an abstract, maybe because it's a business method, which couple of justices think or maybe just because it's abstract and then the second part you can't you can't patent using a computer to do that abstract thing because that's totally obvious like once you perceive the abstract thing that you would use a computer to perform those calculations is obvious and so it seems to me there are this would be better analyzed i don't know if you guys who are expert in this agree by breaking this supposed patent into a couple of different things and observing that it fails to be patentable for uh, that that each part of that fail to be pa- e- fails to be patentable for different reasons, one abstraction and one because obvious. So you have uh, uh, you have hit upon one topic that many people who are unhappy with the Alice opinion uh, would readily opine on, uh, which is the notion. And this gets to the second question of the two questions I was talking about a moment ago. Uh, which, if we agree that these kind of patents should not be uh, issuing, because we think they're doing more to harm society than help it, exactly how should we get rid of them? One camp would say, look, we have a set of fairly well-known 
well-established doctrines and patent law that try to eliminate relatively more costly claims uh, outside of this Section 101 doctrine of patentable subject matter, which is the doctrine that the court was addressing in Alice. Uh, so we have a doctrine called non-obviousness, uh, novelty and non-obviousness together, which kind of say, look, is this particular invention significantly different enough from the technological status quo that it's an enough of an advance forward that we think it merits protection? Um, and this is what you're saying, oh, is it unexpected, is one of the common considerations in this non-obviousness doctrine. Many people argue that this opinion should have been, uh, didn't have to be addressed on this Section 101 patent eligibility ground, because if the courts had just waited long enough, it would have been knocked out on this non-obviousness ground. And they say non-obviousness is a well-established doctrine, uh, and look, we're going to end up with a lot less headaches, a lot fewer people scratching their heads about what the heck is patent law, if only we relied on non-obviousness rather than patent eligibility to achieve that end. Similarly, outside of patent eligibility, there's a doctrine called, <coughs> I'll just productively call it enablement, uh, which uh, tries to reduce the scope of an invention to um, a patent to which an inventor is entitled. So someone, a famous case when uh, 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 Morse, Samuel Morse came up with the first telegraph uh, that worked over long distances. Uh, he could imagine only allowing him to claim narrowly the particular machine and other machines like it that, uh, that effectively achieved communication over a distance, or you could allow Morse, who was the first inventor of a machine that was capable of communicating over long distances, to claim all machines that communicate over long distances. Enablement doctrine is set up, it's this well-established doctrine that curtails patent scope uh, by allowing, uh, by saying no, inventors aren't entitled to the very broad claims, they're only kind of entitled to claims that uh, encompass technologies that uh, the inventor actually taught people how to make and use. Now, that's a rough summary of those doctrines. But one camp, and I think I hear this in your, your question, Christian, would say, look, we should rely on non-obviousness and enablement to get rid of these patents. We know a lot about those doctrines. We think they draw relatively clearish lines. On the other hand, what we have here is the Supreme Court using Section 101 doctrine to try to get at that same end. Uh, they are trying to use the doctrine of patent eligibility, which is much less defined. A lot I can't describe to you exactly what the doctrine of patent eligibility is, nearly as well as I can de define for you what non-obviousness and enablement are. Uh, and therefore, many commentators would say, look, this whole process of sending this case up to the Supreme Court as a Section 101 case is just a red herring. Look, these patents are problematic. We shouldn't be giving overbroad patents to inventors who really didn't push technical, though they are far very far forward. However, we should use non-obviousness and enablement to get rid of them rather than patent eligibility. Is that what I hear Can you I, suggesting, Christian? Well, well I, I raise that as an argument because the obvious counter argument is that with non-obviousness, you've got to take testimony and, and 101 is the court's device to get rid of cases cheaply because all you have to do is basically look at the pleadings and look at the patent rather than figure out like what people knew in the, in the arts. Right. The answer to that though, I think is just, uh, um, to say that if all you claim is a computer implementation of an abstract idea as a matter of law, that is not non-obvious. In other words, that is obvious. And then I think you get over what is the obvious but, objection so to then, the Christian, use of non-obviousness. In, right? in, yeah. your, in your description right there, you just, you just did one thing that's very interesting. 
you took it for granted that a method of um, uh, engaging in reducing risk settlement using a third-party intermediary is something called a, quote, abstract idea. Uh, and so under, when we're actually engaging in the non-obviousness analysis, uh, there is no set of things where we say abstract idea, that's an abstract idea, and how much ever creativity might have been involved in coming up with that abstract idea can't be considered. You can only take abs the, whatever inventiveness is inherent in coming up with an abstract idea out of the mix of non-obviousness if you do this analysis under Section 101 rather than under uh, the, the non-obviousness analysis. No, could, but I, could, I was, Go ahead, Joe. Yeah. Uh, I want to interject that um, I, I think Christian's pointed to half of what's dramatically different and importantly different about using this patentable subject matter mechanism rather than waiting for a full-bore non-obviousness analysis. So he pointed to the fact that uh, treating it as a legal question is a way to say you're going to do it in a more summary fashion without all the expensive legal process, um, the most expensive forms of legal process inquiring into various kinds of documents and various things that have happened before that have to be proved sometimes with the use of experts, right? So it's cheaper and more summary in that sense. It, importantly, it's also the, the burden in essence, because it's a legal question, not a fact question, that there isn't the kind of allocation of the burden on the person who wants to complain about the patent being a, a, a proper patent claim. Uh, so in the case where you're doing all this exploring of facts, whether it's enablement or non-obviousness, take the patent office, for example, um, the office has to show the lack of entitlement to the patent claim. The applicant gets the benefit of the doubt in that fact inquiry, and the examiner has to come forward and make the case that it's not patentable. Um, and, and with this patentable subject matter analysis, it's quite the reverse, right? You can have the decision maker who says, look, that just doesn't look like it's the right kind of thing to patent. And then it's up to the patentee to come forward and make the case that it is. So this, the reason why I think this is worth pointing out is because I think the, the something that's very healthy about the court's use of Section 101 in this way is as an information-forcing mechanism to get applicants to be more particular, all other things being equal, right? Get them to aim at more particular explanations and claims. Uh, and that's really good because it's forcing the person with better information about what they invented to say it, to say the information in the form of a better claim, in the form of a better disclosure that supports that claim. And 101 lets you do that in a way that non-obviousness and enablement by themselves, I, d I think, don't do as well a job, as good a job. Excuse me. Hmm. No, I think that's right. Uh, it's commonly described in both role, both the features of Section 101 that we've discussed uh, are commonly rolled into one normative justification for Section 101, which is called um, a gatekeeper approach, right? It, it's an administratively more uh, uh, cost-effective manner for, uh, even if there is a great deal of redundancy between the set of patents that would be uh, invalidated under non-obviousness and enablement and the set of patents that would be invalidated under Section 101, the gatekeeper theory of Section 101 says that for all these reasons, uh, we're going to force you to use 101 because we think it makes for uh, more costly adjudications and also uh, may well allow you to uh, force you to reveal certain kinds of information about your invention that you wouldn't otherwise come forward with. 
And I think the indefiniteness case that they decided this term, that's called Nautilus, um, it, they, they take a similar tack when they're defining this, this patent doctrine called indefiniteness. This is the notion that you're not entitled to a patent unless the language in the patent claim is adequately definite to create a boundary between what's covered and what's not covered. And the court rejects the lower courts, the Supreme Court rejects the lower courts approach to this issue. It says, no, you need to be more clear than that. And so what did they do? They moved the, they moved the doctrine in a way that forces more information from the patent claimant. So in both the 101 context and the indefiniteness context, I think the court is trying to reorient patent law to say it's okay to demand more from inventors who want these government-backed exclusion rights that prevent competition in the marketplace. Look, the default rule in the marketplace is people are free to use all information that's presently available to compete against each other as hard as they want. You, the patent applicant, you want an exception to that, you know, cage deathmatch hellscape, which is the competitive economy, right? So in order to warrant that escape, right, in order to warrant that vacation from competition, you need to demonstrate that you're entitled to it. So we get to ask you for all kinds of additional information about, well, what did you really do? How does that really advance the art? What is really the boundary between what you invented and what you didn't invent? So I think there's a real consistency in the court's approach to these issues this term. That makes sense to me. And for the past few, right? I mean, what the court's been doing is chipping away at at patent trolls, essentially, right? I mean, and and people who claim very broad patents, which, you know, uh, um, mainly serve to disrupt innovation rather than to uh, promote it. But And this is the fourth patentable subject matter decision by the Supreme Court in five years. Yeah. So that's a lot of Supreme Court activity on a single legal doctrine. Do I have that right, Kevin? I think it's four. Yeah, oh, yeah, yes, it is. So there were two. Another um, uh, aspect of the inside baseball going on in this case is that uh, the Supreme Court has decided four cases on patent eligibility within the last five years. Uh, the Two of those have addressed uh, what we might consider to be business methods, and two have addressed uh, patent eligibility in the context of the life sciences. Uh, so in the, on the business method side, the first of those four cases was a case called Bilski that addressed a, a method of conducting business where the claim wasn't limited to computer execution. And Alice was seen to be as a, a follow-on case to Bilski because it said, okay, here's another method of uh, uh, engaging in a business transaction where the claim actually is limited to computer execution. Whereas the two life sciences cases had to do with the patent eligibility of certain kinds of diagnostic tests. Uh, and the patent eligibility of um, certain kinds of claims to isolated DNA molecules. And one of the questions that's been being asked, and I think that Alice uh, raises here, and this gets very inside baseball, is the extent to which the rules that are articulated in one in the biomedical cases uh, actually have much of anything to do with what's going on in the software cases and whether the software cases influence the biotech cases or whether in, verse, op, in an opposite way you could just say no these are two different kinds of two different kinds of cases they may depend um, emerge from the same statute but the law that's being developed in the biotech and the software cases should really be kept separate as because they're distinct kinds of problems that are all arrive in the patenting of these two different areas. And what Alice actually yep. does is it merges these two, saying, look, we it's really a unified body of law that we're trying to use in both areas. 
<laughs> but I, I actually, although I'm a fan of patent eligibility being cut back, uh, I wonder whether, as we're trying to develop clear doctrine, if this merger ends up being helpful because the Supreme Court may be ending forced to speak in such abstract generalities to explain the broad variety of cases that it can't actually get down to the nitty gritty and really say what it's doing in any particular case. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out what this merger is, because uh, as I have read these cases, um, again, as a non-expert in patent, uh, mm -hmm. what I see is are, are some basic principles that you, you can't patent pure math. You can't, um, you can't patent discoveries of natural phenomena. So, you know, you can't patent um, uh, DNA that you've isolated that exists in nature, but you can patent... Uh, forms of DNA that wouldn't exist but for some kind of chemical reaction which you induce. Uh, you can't patent um, uh, you and, and then you, you can't patent anything which is not patentable under one of those categories where all you say in addition is that you've uh, you claim a machine which performs those things. See, I'm not um, I'm not sure how helpful it really is to align the two sets because in the biotech cases uh, the court is struggling with the notion of how far removed from the natural do you have to be in order to have a patentable invention. So let's say all our the genome, our, our genetic sequences clearly exist in nature. Uh, however, there's a change to nature made when you isolate a gene from the larger uh, chromosome. Uh, is that change to nature enough of a shift from what existed before to make a patentable invention? The biotech cases are all couched in this rhetoric of how much change from the natural is required in order to get patent eligibility. And it's very I formalistic. I mean, the, yeah, I mean, the court talks about an inventive step, but even mm -hmm. in that case, the DNA case, right? So the, the gene, the information in the gene does exist in nature through, I guess, messenger RNA or one of these other forms of RNA. Uh, but what the, what were they were allowed to claim, what I remember from that case was kind of the, the, inv the mirror image of that in, it, in the DNA. Complimentary the complementary DNA, the CD. I don't, you know, we don't want to get in, you know. I don't know enough to get too nerdy about it, but uh, but they can claim that because that doesn't exist in nature, even though it is information which is completely contained in the mRNA. See, but the and so Thomas wrote this very formalistic opinion saying, you know, one exists in nature and one doesn't. And in order to get the one which doesn't, there has to be some human intervention, which is to me different than human invention, right? It's different than it, to say there's a human intervention. It's different to say that there's an inventive step. I, I'm not. Um, I'm not sure. Ahead, I want yeah. to put any weight on that distinction uh, uh, because the the DNA case they drew this distinction between two different kinds of products which did not exist in nature. One which was much closer to the um, to what exists in nature, and they said no, that's too close. And even though it is technically novel, even though it is technically something not found in nature, we're going to say that it exists. It's kind of like the stuff that exists in nature. It's too much like the stuff that exists in nature to be patentable. Whereas they said a different kind of DNA claim, oh, there's been enough change between, nature has been tweaked enough so that we'll say this other kinds of stuff can be patentable. Uh, but the court never really admitted that it was just saying small tweaks, not patentable, large tweaks, patentable. It tried to come up with a rhetoric to discuss that distinction that ends up not really holding water at all. But, but I think see, we're, see we're Kevin, that's my problem. No, no, no. I mean, that's, I think that's a central, for me, you know, naively, maybe that's the central problem is that, uh, 
what the, so, so you can't patent the stuff that exists in nature. You can't patent pure discovery of things about the universe, right? So you can't patent, you know, and, and I have whole problems with the way the court treats math as discoverable and stuff, but whatever else. So you can't patent pure discovery of genomes or, or of genetic sequences, but you can patent tweaks, like you say, large tweaks of those, even though the large tweak is a totally generic uh, a thing that everybody already knows how to do, right? Everybody already knows how to create cDNA from uh, whether it's RNA or mRNA. I don't know which, you know, but the, the naturally occurring thing, once you have that, everybody already knows how to create the cDNA from that. In the same way that if you think of, and again, you, you mentioned I assume this and I do, uh, that, you know, the guy in the room in the Alice Corporation case is a you know, is is an abstract idea or a, or an unpatentable business, however you want to talk about it. But it. Putting that on a computer is something everybody already knows how to do. Mm-hmm. So, right. And so at those, yeah. Um, uh, so again, we're, we're going back and forth between these two different kinds of cases that I personally am not convinced delighting them together makes, is going to make the situation easier. Um, but about talking about the the natural side for a moment you said okay we'll all agree the discoveries are not patentable when we say that we have to really distinguish two different things that occur when we make a discovery on the one hand when we make a discovery so we're just dusting off something or we're uncovering something that already existed in nature Uh, On the one hand, what we're doing is we're gaining the ability to describe a tangible material thing that existed before humankind made the discovery. Uh, That is the issue uh, that the kind of discovery that was at issue in um, the DNA case, uh, the Myriad case. There was a question of how much change to the material thing that was discovered out there do you have to make in order to have a material thing that is patent eligible? Discovery also means something entirely different. Discovery sometimes means, haha, I have created new knowledge. After I discover something in nature, there is a brand new mental state in my mind that codifies Uh, that embodies knowledge which did not exist before. So there, when we start to talk about discovery as the creation of new knowledge, we actually are creating something new. Uh, However, uh, again, in these biotech cases, I would interpret them to say, look, that simple (coughs) creation of knowledge, even though the knowledge is new, knowledge is not discovered, knowledge is created, uh, the The creation of that knowledge is not the kind of creation that we should reward with a patent because it's not the kind of technology, knowledge itself, that we think the patent regime was designed to cover. So when we're talking in the biotech world, I think it's really important to make this distinction between these two meanings of discovery, and there have to be two very different kinds of limits on patentable subject matter in order to protect against people patenting products of nature, that is, material things that strongly resemble that which exists in nature, and a different kind of limit on patentable subject matter when we're talking about patenting processes that are made possible because one is actually created new knowledge about the nature that has already existed, but the knowledge is new in that instance. But it's not the knowledge that, I mean, so isn't it the case though, if we, if we restrict knowledge to, to say true knowledge, like, you know, whether it's justified true belief mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. the philosophers say, or something sure. different, let's suppose it's just true knowledge for a second. Mm-hmm. It seems to me there's a, there's a complete isomorphism or at least homomorphism between 
uh, new knowledge mm -hmm. and facts about the world that would exist even without human knowledge, right? So, uh, in other words, knowing the particular sequence of a gene mm -hmm. in a tree frog or something like mm -hmm. that, right? Uh, when I discover that sequence of a gene, I've created new knowledge, right? There's now a new human mental state, which yes. I can transmit through information to other humans, and that's new. And that's what I think what you refer to as a knowledge advancement mm -hmm. in your work, uh, which we will link up in the show notes, and people should take a look because it's a fascinating article. Uh, but that, uh, that new knowledge uh, maps on directly to that fact about the world, right? And so it doesn't depend on there being people to know it. It doesn't depend on there being people to know it. Exactly. So, so Sorry, I, Kevin, I, we cut you off. Yeah. So, no, no, um, so I, I was just saying that uh, it maps directly under a feature in the world if you're of a certain philosophical bent, which is going far beyond uh, uh, the scope <laughs> that we're talking about here, right? Yeah, yeah. Which has to have that philosophical yeah. bent in order to believe in technological progress to begin with somehow. So. Exactly. Oh, right, right, right. Right. But right. yeah, so these debates about patent law do lay bare certain assumptions. Like patent law seems to make certain assumptions about the nature of the world and our relationship to that world and um et cetera, et cetera. I mean it does I I do think those assumptions are sort of baked into the patent law cake. But Kevin, you make a distinction between that kind of knowledge, which you know, I would argue you is, is not distinct from facts about the world, uh irrespective of human knowledge, and knowledge which uh, and 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 advancements which um, basically in, are instructive of human interaction with the world. What you, I think what you call like embodiment advances. Yeah. This is you know in other words, I've discovered a way that human beings can be different in in the world, right, and more productive. And here's a, a formula for that, right? And the formula, you know, it's a, here here's a set of behaviors you can engage in which are productive in a way. Mm -hmm. um, that seems to me to be very different because it's a kind of claim. Um, uh, about it's it's a kind it's a, it's a, it's again it's a state of knowledge, but it's a state of knowledge that wouldn't exist without culture. Well, uh, I think so. We're we're still on the biotech side of things here, uh, and we're kind sure, of talking sure. about cases we haven't really laid out the facts on. So this is a little bit floating in the air. Uh, but <laughs> that's um, the only way we do this show. <laughs> okay, <Kevin>. okay. <laughs> um, uh, but I do think there's an important distinction to make within patent law. Uh, between two different kinds, and this is on the biotech side, mostly the cases, uh, there's an important distinction to make between two different kinds of technological advance. On the one hand, we learn new facts about the world, and as I've mentioned, an understanding of the world actually is a novel mental state, and there are a number of uh, patents out there where inventors said, oh, I've come, I've discovered a new fact, I've created new knowledge, and I am going to claim the advancement in thinking that is possible because one understands a fact as a kind of patentable invention. And I've argued that those kinds of advances, which I've called knowledge advances, uh, should be beyond the reach of patent protection categorically, whereas a different kind of advance, something that I call an embodiment advance, which is either a novel thing in the world or a new set of processes apart from simply understanding knowledge. When uh, those are uh, embodiment advances circumscribe the outer limits of what can be patented. Now, I'm not trying to make an argument that every embodiment advance should be patent eligible. I'm not trying to say that all of that should be patented, but in some, what I'm trying to do is just carve off the knowledge advances as a category of patentable of inventions, which per se should not be eligible for protection. 
To make it a little bit more um, concrete, because yeah. I, I, uh, I, I'm very congenial to this uh, this way of thinking, it seems to me that uh, one very rough and ready uh, take on it could be, you know, if, if you can't tell me in a few sentences, maybe one, um, <laughs> like, what's the human problem to which this thing you want a patent on is the solution? Like, what's the problem and how is this thing a solution to that problem? If you can't package it that way for me, I'm deeply suspicious that patent law is the thing we should be talking about. Well, see, I'm not as a way to as a way to move the ball forward. So I would agree with you on that statement, but I'm not sure it captures the distinction that I was talking about just a moment ago. Because oftentimes the discovery of a new piece of knowledge is immensely useful for human uh, for for humankind. Take for ex- example a case. Um, which actually was before the Supreme Court, uh, the last case on patent eligibility before the Supreme Court, before Alice, uh, called Prometheus. In Prometheus, some researchers made a discovery. They discovered that if you, a patient is taking a particular kind of medicine, if you have a metabolite level, that is a, a, a molecule in your blood that is made by metabolizing a drug that you're taking, if you have a metabolite level above a particular specified threshold, uh, then um, the patient is more likely to suffer adverse uh, consequences in the form of toxic side effects from having uh, too much of this metabolite in the blood. So what they claimed was the following method. They claimed a method of um, uh, determining whether a patient had a certain amount of metabolite in his blood uh, with using methods that were well-known in the prior art. People had been testing these metabolite levels before. And then second, inferring that a patient needed uh, to reduce uh, the amount of the drug they're taking if the metabolite level was over that amount. <clears throat> now that, there is an example for me where all that has been created is a new piece of knowledge. The inventor discovered a correlation between metabolite levels and um, uh, toxicity uh, in the blood. That's new knowledge. And what if they claim? They've claimed the use of that knowledge in a mental inference in order to determine what should happen in the future. I would argue that that is uh, 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 a claim to a knowledge advance that should not be patent eligible, yet I still think it has precisely the kind of utility for humankind that you were mentioning, Joe, which you were saying might be an indicia of what should be patented. Can we can we uh, connect this then? And maybe we're, we're getting, you know, we'll have to wind up pretty soon. Yes. Because uh, Kevin has Kevin has very important uh, embodiments to work on, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, but uh, by, because we've been kind of talking internal to patent law in a way, like, you know, what what kinds of doctrines are coherent and possible? And, and the distinction that you've laid is, is normative in that you think one kind, you know, embodiments might be eligible for patents and, and knowledge advancements uh, generally should not be. Um, and I think to, to know whether... Uh, people should agree with you, it's important to connect that with the reasons we have patent law in the first place, which is a total human invention itself, right? And uh, we have potentially different purposes. A couple are, you know, by by rewarding people with protection from uh, competition, we encourage them to work on things that they might not work on if they couldn't be guaranteed of, of reaping 
that kind of monopoly reward. Um, we also maybe encourage people to disclose things because otherwise, if I'm going to work on something which is really valuable, I might try to keep it secret so I can capture as many benefits as possible. And it would be better if everybody knew about this thing. And so maybe we encourage disclosure. And then, uh, you know, Paul Heald, who we've had on the show before to talk about this, is a big proponent of of a purpose of encouraging transactions in mm-hmm. in knowledge and, and technology. And so patent gives people, by drawing clear property lines, you encourage people to, to trade. Um Again, I, I'm not sure, you know, that um, it, certainly in software patents that any of those purposes are actually served. Mm-hmm. Um, and in patents more broadly, I'm not I'm skeptical that any of those purposes are served. But if you want to, um, you know, maybe you think that there is a class of embodiments where those purposes or some other salutary purpose of um, of monopoly grants um, is served. What, what are those? I mean, how, how does that match up? So uh, I want, uh, just as a, a starting point, I agree with you entirely, Christian, that uh, the, there is no um, uh, must in what we call patent law. Uh, even though I sometimes work in terms that uh, sound in certain kinds of philosophical distinctions, which I think are really important for patent people to know, in the end of the day, those distinctions are only important in patent law if they map onto helping us to draw lines between the kinds of things which we think should or should not be patented in order to achieve utilitarian, valuable goals for society, right? Uh, patent law, in the end, <coughs> should uh, finally be justified based on whether or not we're allowing patents on the kinds of inventions where we think the patents are helping society and patent law is denying protect, um, protection to those inventions where we think the patents aren't helping society. So the question then is how do right. you map uh, what kinds of lines do we want to end up drawing in order to be able to um, uh, divide, you know, sort the sheep from the goats to be able to say, look, these kinds of patents are covering inventions where we think uh, there was hard enough for people to come up with them that we think uh, the uh, and are narrow enough. Uh, that we think the benefits of having these patents, the incentives that you talked about, are greater than the costs of having these patents, which are usually tallied as increased price, uh, slightly slower future innovation to the extent future innovation uses today's patent inventions as inputs, and administrative costs. How difficult is it to actually draw these lines that separate the sheep from the goats? So I think all the action is uh, exactly where you're talk where you're talking about. One of my views on patent law, however, is that in order to be able to draw the lines that we really think that I think achieve that, we need to take a step back and, and uh, uh, question some unquestioned assumptions we make about how patent law works. Uh, and distinctions like the distinction between embodiment and knowledge advances are very useful uh, in order to precisely achieve those utilitarian goals. Is if When I get off this phone call, I am going back to the draft uh, of, of a patent article, precisely where I am making uh, normative utilitarian arguments backing up the, uh, uh, the argument that knowledge advances should be unpatentable subject matter where uh, uh, embodiment advances should be patent eligible. Uh, so I don't I don't know where you want to go with your question in particular, Christian. We can talk about the software cases, but I think the lines in order to separate what should be patentable and what shouldn't uh, are are multitudinous and not not something we can easily run through at the end of the show. 
Yeah, no, no, no. I, we're not going to solve all all the problems with patent <laughs> law, patent thickets, and everything else right now. Uh, uh, unless you agree with me that nothing should be patented. Oh. I mean, is there? Why don't you? What you know? A useful thing might be just to justify a category of embodiment advances, which you sure. in which you think mm-hmm. uh, that the that some salutary purposes are served. Mm-hmm. By so, monopoly grants. Yeah, pick the lowest hanging fruit. What's the easiest sure. case? Okay, so uh, first let me just say, Christian, uh, you should read, have you read, I teach at the Washington University School of Law in St. Louis. Uh, a book was written by two uh, colleagues of mine in the economics department here, um, uh, Boldrin and Levine, uh, which uh, sets forward the strong case for the fact that patents should not exist. Uh, so, And I think it would very much... Uh, it's very much in line with your your the, the views you've expressed, Christian. If that's of interest to you, yeah. Um, the for, so let me take the low hanging fruit would usually be considered conventionally and considered to be the pharmaceutical industry, uh, because yep. in the pharmaceutical industry you have a convergence of a whole bunch of factors that make. Uh, patents more socially beneficial. On the first uh, instance, uh, you have very expensive uh, research and development. This research and development is expensive not only to come up with new compounds to test, but to test those compounds, and finally, to test them to determine safety and efficacy concerns in humans. The the, uh, amount of money that has to be put into bringing any particular drug to market is quite large. Absent some form of patent protection, it's doubtful that the pharmaceutical industry would engage in that research and development to produce drugs that we really do, that I believe, uh, really do make us as a, as a race better off. Um, so, uh, not only as a race, but as a, uh, as a biosphere, right? Uh, uh, every, make the world better off. Um, so, and that's because, I mean, drugs kind of have that natural monopoly characteristic, right? Not, where there are huge fixed costs and very low marginal it's, costs. It's hard to know right? whether I mean, they're monopoly, uh, natural monopoly characteristics, um, uh, because sometimes it actually is possible to come up with a second drug uh, that has a very different molecular structure that achieves a very similar clinical result, right? Um, but, right. Sub- yeah, okay. So, uh, but the you just need you just need a disparity between the research it takes to make the first pill and the money it takes to make every pill thereafter, right. and there is a huge disparity in pharma mm-hmm. on that score. So that the, the cost of duplic cost of duplicating a known thing is vanishingly small relative to the cost of creating the very first in- embodiment of it. And we can compound that other factors that weigh in favor of um, the pharmaceutical industry are twofold. First, there's risk. So for every, uh, it's not only that you have to be compensated for the marginal cost of producing the drug that actually does make it to market, but there are all kinds of drugs that don't make it to market in which there are sunk costs (coughs) that also have to be reimbursed through the patents on the successful drugs. Uh, So that yet further aggravates the ratio that Joe just mentioned. Uh, and finally, there's a notion that in the, this brings us back to software patents. There's a notion that in the biotech, in the pharmaceutical area, patents can be fairly clear in describing the boundaries of what they claim and what they don't claim. If you actually claim a pharmaceutical compound by, in some way, by the structure of a molecule, it's pretty simple to tell when you gain some kind of new petri dish or new um, pipette with some new chemical in your hand, you can tell whether or not the new chemical falls within the scope of the claim that's defined by the structure of the patented chemical. Uh, that's not going to be as true in the software realm because there's a lot of complaints 
because software is principally defined by its function, oftentimes functional terms are much more difficult to pin down with certainty exactly how broad or narrow they are, uh, and therefore determining the scope of claims in the software area is much more costly, making the administration of software patents much more costly than the administration of pharmaceutical patents. So there really is a kind of perfect storm that comes around pharma uh, as to reasons why you can use it as an exemplar of a situation in which actually we do think the patent regime is promoting some social good. That's not to say the patent regime is optimized. I think there are some changes that could be made in patent law to make the incentives in the pharma area yet better. Uh, but nonetheless, I would say that's an example of why we perhaps should not get rid of patent law altogether. And and I would add on the pharma claims that not only are the claims as individual property boundaries uh, more crisp because of the chemical nomenclature that allows you to claim a particular active ingredient, but the correspondence between a patent claim and the product that's sold in the market is much closer to a, a basic one-to-one correspondence. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the software claims area, you, you know, a given um, a, a given laptop computer running basic available consumer software might be infringing hundreds or thousands of patents. So there's a very bad uh, fit between the scope of a claim I own in a separate patent and what's going on out there in the marketplace. The reason that that's potentially troubling or or difficult is because it means the transaction costs just sort of skyrocket if you're thinking about people taking seriously the notion that they should license patents before practicing the technologies they cover. So both because of the murky boundary within any claim and because of the poor fit between a claim and a product in the market, you've got patents just really turning into this gray goo of hell over in the software area that in pharma, it just doesn't seem to happen nearly as much. And just, just to be clear uh, on this, the, the pills are considered uh, are embodiment advances under your framework, right, Kevin? Because they are... Uh, go ahead. So yeah, uh, the framework that I was talking about just a moment ago is uh, 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 most everything, even in the software area, not only the pills, but even a programmed computer is in most instances, I can put a footnote here and talk about the instances in which it's not, but most programmed computer claims would also be embodiment advances. And this is part of why... Uh, I am trying to make sure that it's understood that the distinguishing knowledge advances and embodiment advances, I'm not trying to say all embodiment advances should be patentable. Uh, It's rather we're just trying to carve out knowledge advances as one category which we can clearly say should not be. But yes, your answer, both pills and most programmed computers uh, would be embodiment advances. So the argument with pharma, and I actually think we should get rid of patents even for pharma, but uh, the argument for pharma uh, patents is one without um uh some kind of reward um people would not invent new drugs uh because um the copying is so cheap um compared to in- invention and secondly um that unlike that um delineation costs are low because you're dealing with molecular formulae it's easy to tell whether uh whether something is a copy because the question is does it have the same or very very similar molecular structure and thirdly, the point Joe made, which is sometimes called a thicket anti-commons or royalty stacking problem, which has to do with the relationship between the number of patents and uh, that actually read on any given product that's sold in the marketplace. So I think those but, but three, it still doesn't, those three yeah, come together to make the perfect store. So basically it's saying that you need some kind of reward, 
Monopoly is a reward. And the worst problems that typically arise with monopolies in this area are may not arise here. But it doesn't necessarily say that patent is the best solution. Right. So, um, so there's, a, and, there's a robust literature now which is suggesting that uh, uh, we need to not think about patents as the only way of incentivizing innovation. It's actually a relative question uh, where you have to um, pit off publicly funded research versus prize systems uh, versus uh, other kind of lead time, uh, other ways in which uh, there are incentives to innovation absent patent law. And you certainly have to make a comparison across these different incentivization mechanisms to ask whether patent law is the optimal way of achieving uh, the incentives that are that are needed. Exactly, because in you know with uh, with with patent for for drugs, uh, the incentive to produce uh, to to research a drug and try to produce one is going to be based on the aggregate willing to pay of of people who would mm-hmm. who would buy such drugs, mm-hmm. and that's a system which has led us to. Um, uh, problems with, say, developing countries not getting medications at prices they can afford unless there's an ability to kind of wall off markets, uh, which is, you know, another intervention into the market that you may or may not want to take, uh, and has led maybe to an excess of sexual dysfunction pills and not enough of other kinds of pills, which would serve maybe fewer people, but with more severe conditions. Um, uh, and and furthermore, I mean, the market is kind of weird because the, the buyers are, you know, because of insurance and doctors, there were kind of two layers of agents between the people who would benefit from these drugs and, and, and the people who, who pay for them and choose them. No, I agree with you. The question is whether, and I'm not trying to advocate when I say patents are working in the pharma industry, that patents are the only uh, tool from our incentivizing innovation toolkit that we should be using. Uh, clearly, they do fall short when we say that when we aren't able to say that um, uh, aggregate willingness to pay is actually a good metric for social welfare. Uh, in right. those instances, uh, you certainly do want to think about using other me- other tools from the toolkit as well. Uh, however, I do believe that there is a place for uh, a patent law and its demand side uh, a, a metric uh, as one of the tools that should be operated that we should use from the toolkit in order to uh, in order to promote uh, pharmaceutical innovation. Well, that's about it. <laughs> we, I think we've exhausted my uh, the, my my patent knowledge. Uh, just about. Uh, is, is there anything else you want to say, Kevin, to disabuse us of, or, or disabuse the listeners of like misconceptions they have about <laughs> the patent system? Or, so, uh, of, you, you, do you want to teach an entire patent class in yeah, the next exactly. thirty seconds? Part know. of part of what I'm trying to do still is disabuse uh, other patent experts of their well solidly held opinions about patent law. Uh, uh, but in in this context, um, uh, I will just say to come back to where we started. Uh, I think that the Alice uh, is the, as Joe mentioned, this fourth of five recent opinions on patent eligibility, um, five if you count another one that the Supreme Court accepted cert and then dismissed it as improvidently granted before uh, actually issuing an opinion. Uh, it was very influential as well. Um, but uh, I think that the software issues and whether or not this particular software claim uh, 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 is a, should be an unpatentable because it is an abstract idea under Section 101 of the Patent Act. Uh, it, uh, although I have uh, a lot of sympathy, and actually I agree that this patent shouldn't 
be patent eligible subject matter, parsing the opinions on the software side, I'm not convinced that a lot of the discussion we've had about the biotech side is really going to be that informative uh, as to whether or not these claims should be patent eligible. Uh, I tend to think that we'd be much better off with the divide and conquer approach to recognize there are different problems in different areas. And rather than trying to develop one set of universalizing rhetoric that we can bring to bear in all patent eligibility cases, we'd be much better off if we um, uh, engaged in divide and conquer, tried to identify the distinct problems that exist in distinct areas, and recognize that we may well need different tools, uh, and that we need to use different language to describe those different tools in the different areas. So well, I, I think the patent bar would welcome that with open arms. I, I don't know. It certainly, <laughs> I, I'm not sure they would because there is a big tendency to, uh, to try to lump all of these Section 101 cases together. The court uses, this goes back to something you mentioned, Christian, they use uh, the same normative logic. They talk about basic tools needing to be beyond the reach of patent protection in all these different cases. But I think patents can become basic tools for different reasons. And until we recognize the different ways in which different patents are different kinds of basic tools, we won't be able to pull different tools out of the toolbox that actually are able to address these different problems. And whether or not... Um the patent bar would be convinced. Um, I think Kevin's made as good an argument as can be made that he has to come back for another discussion because we need a do-over. Like we, we, this whole thing was going to be about software patents, but we turned out <laughs> to talk about the other ones instead. <laughs> so we need to actually do an episode where we talk about what we thought we were going to talk about, which is great because that means Kevin's coming back because he just said he needs to. With, with any luck, that's what I heard. With any luck, we'll get rid. We'll get rid of software patents before that occasion arises. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Excellent.